I were going to do incentive compensation, which I'm not in favor of actually. The best incentive compensation is paying somebody well, and the incentive is uh, for them to keep that that well-paying job the next year. Right? That's that should be the greatest the greatest incentive. But it would be to, uh, to create incentives around customer measures. Right? So because the the thing that makes companies successful is having happy customers. And so customer retention numbers, customer acquisition numbers. Welcome to the Just Larson Show, where I interview innovators, leaders, and uncommonly high achievers. Today on the show, we're lucky to have Roger Martin. He's a famous author and advisor to CEOs. Roger, thanks for doing this. It's my pleasure, Jess. Thanks for having me on. So you've got a pretty cool background. I'm not going to lie. When Candace said that we should have you on, it was an easy yes. So can you give people a few of the highlights of, of maybe some of the more notable accomplishments? Well, sure. So my, I had a few big chunks in my background. One was working with a, a group of classmates and friends and others to build a consulting firm called Monitor Company in the 80s and 90s. It was a strategy consulting mm-hmm. firm based in Boston, Massachusetts. And then I got talked into coming back to my home country, yours as well, Canada, to help turn the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto from a not so prominent business school to, to a better one and did that for 15 years and and since then have been have been mainly advising CEOs writing writing books uh, which I've done all, all along and have some books that, that are that are quite well known playing to win a book on strategy the design of business I know you're in innovation design of business is considered one of the uh, few top books on design thinking yeah I think that that's a thumbnail sketch of me along the way I I was on the board of and then chairman of Canada's Tennis Federation and put in place the strategy that's turned us from a tennis, complete tennis backwater into a leading tennis nation with some of the most exciting young players out there. So that was uh, fun to do on the side. Oh, that's exciting. So I'm excited to talk about the new book, but how many books have you written total now? Uh, the new one is the 13th. Okay. So for people who haven't heard of it, will you, uh, will you tell us about it? Sure. It's called A New Way to Think, and it's, it's a book on on models, on, on business models. And the theme of the book is how we seem to have happen in business over and over again, that we let models continue to be dominant in their use without having to work. And so it's a book that says, here's a set of models that we use in business, are taught in business schools, we use widely that haven't worked. Here's a better model to replace the, the the one that hasn't been working. Well, I want to dive into some of these, but one thing I want to put out there, you made it to the top of the Thinkers 50. That's a pretty prestigious list, my friend. Well, yeah, that was, that was nice. It was nice. Uh, I mean, I, I was surprised when I first got on the list. They do the, the top 50 and they, they let me know that I'd been on it. I think I was 32nd or something. And then I've just sort of gone up to sixth and third and second and first and second and, and, and the like. So... So it's, it's, it feels good to know that, that if you, you know, do enough writing that's useful to people, that, that it's recognized. So I've always wanted to be useful. And it seems as though my writing and ideas are useful enough. You know, one off that list that, that I missed that I really wanted was uh, Clay Christensen. I, yes. I was really hoping to have gotten him and, and uh, unfortunately wasn't, wasn't in time. It wasn't in time, which, which, is, which is a lesson. You know, I wanted to meet with the great management thinker, Russell Acoff. People who work with Russ said, oh, Russ, Russ would like you. You'd like him. You should get together. And I I've, I've phoned his office and we made 
a an appointment he was he was eager to see me and me vice versa but it was like three months from that point i think or something there wasn't a real urgency we didn't neither of us put an urgency to it and then he died and so one of the great management thinkers of the 20th century that i didn't meet because i didn't get on with it so i, I think it's a, a message and clay was a friend a friend of mine and one of the nicest human beings you'll ever meet that's just so he was a giant uh, in his field and a, a absolutely nicest guy. I, I did cold call him once at Harvard and yeah. he, he picked up and he was really friendly. I was actually trying to recruit him for a, for a project for Intel I was working on and he said yes. And anyways, some things got bogged down later and it never happened, but so friendly. Anyways, but a great man. No, he's a, he's a, he sets a kind of standard for being a one, he's a public intellectual, right? Writing books that are of use to the public, but an accessible public intellectual. And, and he was great. We, he, we, we all miss him. I, because I was a friend of him and did stuff with him. I, I was at the global Peter Drucker forum that's every, every year in Vienna. I did a, did a little tribute, tribute to him or Scott Cook and I, the co-founder, was another friend, co-founder of Intuit. And I did a, did a little onstage discussion about his work and his life as an impact and it was it was lots of fun to be able to celebrate his life yeah no kidding well i love stories can we do some stories from the book will you tell us one of the stories that that illustrates uh, your work on models sure let's let's take the idea that's been around for about 50 years now since the mid-70s that in order to maximize shareholder value you should ensure that your senior executives your ceo in particular has has stock-based incentive compensation, right? So that started in the mid '70s. As of 1970, CEOs had almost no stock-based compensation. By 2000, they were getting the majority of their annual compensation from stock-based incentive compensation. And you'd think, Jess, wouldn't you think, after 50 years, there would be some demonstration? You could do studies that would show shareholders did better off when this tool for maximizing shareholder value was being was put in place you'd think wouldn't you yeah there is none hmm. you cannot point to a study that shows there's a positive correlation between between stock-based compensation for executives and instead of compensation for executives and share performance and in fact i would argue that the the way it's done accidentally puts senior executives and shareholders in opposition to one another so in, i say in what way well, what, what it gives the incentives uh, for managers to do is to manipulate expectations in ways that benefit them. So if, if, you, if you said, what's the cleverest way for a CEO to make money on the stock-based compensation grants they get every year? The smartest thing to do is, let's say you take over a CEO when, a, when the stock is 100, or your company is 100. You immediately say, Oh my, now that I'm CEO and I get to look under the covers, this company is in a terrible position, just terrible, terrible. Things are going to look really bad. We're going to have to do a massive restructuring and build this company back up. Stock will immediately go to 50 bucks. Then you do a bunch of things. You lay off a bunch of people and, and, and restructure and whatever. So that say three or four years from there, you get the stock back up to a hundred. You'll have gotten rich on the basis of the the stock options you got at $50 and $60 and $70 that are back at 100 and shareholders uh, who are there with you at, uh, at the beginning made nothing. That's the incentive. The incentive is to create movement in the stock price, volatility in the stock price, 
not the stock price uh, going up. And, and so that's, I believe, one of the reasons why the model doesn't work. It doesn't create the incentive that people think it should create. You know, I feel like, I know this is like very oversimplified, so I'd be interested in your opinion on it. Okay. I feel like so many more times than we want to admit, people do what we pay them for. You know, I've run sales, you know, at some of our previous companies, we've had sales teams that reported to me, you know, 60, 80 sales reps at a time. And like you tweak that compensation structure and you get very different behaviors. And it kind of doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what you put out in the emails. It matters what you pay for in, in my observation. Yes, it does. And the interesting thing is that there still is no study that shows that that, that the monetary incentive compensation improves organizational performance. And so people all say, no, 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 that can't possibly be right because of what you say, people do what you pay them for. But that's at the individual level. One of the trickiest things to do and a thing that has, has been too hard for companies to do to show that it works successfully is to figure out how to have all of those things pointing in one direction. So how often have you had a situation where you provide incentive for the sales force but they sell different stuff that you wish they would have sold. Have you had that happen? Yeah, I know where this was going. <laughs> yeah, right? So they, they will do it. In, in some sense, in, incentive systems are too powerful. They're kind of like an unguided missile. You set it off and then you have no idea what you're actually really, truly creating the incentive for. And that's why when you have salespeople, manufacturing people, marketing people, and you all give them monetary incentive compensation to do things, they end up canceling each other out. Right? Yeah. How often do you have your, your manufacturing people saying, but the salespeople are selling stuff that's more expensive to produce, not the stuff that's easier or cheaper to, to produce. And you ask the salesman, why are you selling that? Because it's easier to sell and I make my commission. So it's, uh, you know, it, it's again, one of the things it's taken as an article of faith that if you, if, if you want to have sales performance, you, you provide incentives. Now, do you know what there is a, an extremely good correlation between a sales compensation and amount of time spent negotiating sales targets. <laughs> so the more, the more sales compensation uh, you, you have, the more it's the most important activity for you as the salesperson in the entire year is negotiating effectively to convince the person setting the targets that something that is very easy is indeed very, very, very hard, right? Um, you can be over quota, huh? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so it turns out that that you know probably hundreds of millions of person hours are spent every year in America on negotiating sales comp plans. Now, do customers benefit from this? Like, are they better off that hundreds of millions of person hours are spent every year on, on, on that activity? Unlikely. No. Yeah. Who is it good for? The rep. Yeah. It's good for the rep. And so, so the, the people who are in incentive compensation structures, the people who actually do best in those structures and are not the people who work hardest do best. They're the people who can lie most effectively about what they can't do. Yeah. Well, so tell me this, at, at Greystoke Investments, we're intending on having multiple funds over time with, with different CEOs that work for us. Any, any advice on what has proven to be ideal CEO compensation? I'm not sure there's anything that's proven ideal. So it's sort of customized to the, to the situation, but I, I mean, 
you're dealing in, in I'm assuming, private investments, yeah. right? So they aren't publicly traded companies. So, so the, the, the problem with compensation based on public stocks is that, is that a stock price is, is something that's part of the expectations market, right? The, you know, you, you're the average S&P 500 price earnings ratio over the last, you know, the time it's existed is about 17 or 18 times. So it's 17, you're paying one times for what's really going on and 17 times for what you think is going to happen in the future. And so it's, an, so giving an executive compensation based on that is compensation to increase expectations, not performance. So my general rule is create incentive compensation systems if you're going to do it based on real things, not expectation things. So I would say the, the best thing you can do is, is figure out what, what real things you want to accomplish. For me, I, I'd always, if I were going to do incentive compensation, which I'm not in favor of actually, the best incentive compensation is paying somebody well. And the incentive is uh, for them to keep that, that well-paying job the next year. Right? That's, that should be the greatest, the greatest incentive. But it would be to, uh, to create incentives around customer measures. Right. So because the the thing that makes companies successful is having happy customers. And so customer retention numbers, customer acquisition numbers, all of those things are more important than financial numbers because they're more predictive of how the company is going to do over time. That's so interesting. Well, can you tell us about a person in the book or a story? A, a story, a personal for, for, for me or a person? No, in, just in, anybody. Yeah, anybody, somebody, uh, Aaron somebody you talk about the book. Aaron, okay. Aaron Rodgers. How about that? The Green Bay Packers quarterback. That's in the chapter on, on, on what makes highly talented people want to work for your organization and then stay at your organization. And the general view is it's for pay that they want to get paid the most. And I argue in the book that no, that's that's not in fact what causes talent, high-end talent to want to kind of work for you. It's being treated as an individual, not treated as a class. So people who have, have spent all their life building their talent want to be recognized as uniquely talented in that way that they produced all their life. So, you know, Aaron Rodgers, as many of your listeners will know, is one of the, the greatest quarterbacks in the NFL of his, of his generation. Some people say the greatest of his generation, at least one of the greatest. Played his entire career with the Green Bay Packers, a legendary franchise, MVP for four years, which is second most in NFL history with Super Bowl winner, Super Bowl MVP. But a year ago, came a cropper with his, with his team and sat out most of the offseason in a, in a big dispute with the team. And he was the highest paid uh, quarterback when he signed his last contract. So it wasn't about pay. It was about having a voice. And what he, what he was quoted as, as saying is, you'd have thought after 17 years of service to the team, being a leader, being, playing at a high level, they would at least ask me, my opinion on what offensive players, wide receivers, running backs, they were, they were playing around me, but they made a point of not doing that. In fact, traded away one of his favorite receivers, didn't sign another one of his favorite, favorite receivers, drafted a quarterback to, to replace him. And, and when he asked about it, they said, you're paid to be quarterback. We make the decisions 
you're a player, we're management. And that was deeply offensive to him, so much so that he shortened his contract by a year, threatened to retire or, or leave, even though he was paid spectacularly well. And the reason is what matters to high-end talent is not being treated generically. You're a player, and here's the way we generically treat players. He understood that players can't make all the decisions. He didn't want to make the decisions. He just wanted some input in the decisions for 17 years of exemplary service as a Hall of Fame quarterback. And, and I, I think we, that's still widely misunderstood. People think that if you're treated as a member of an exalted class, that you'll be happy. But it turns out that we all have in us a desire to be treated as an individual is recognized that we're a unique bundle of skills, capabilities, experiences, and we needed to be treated that way. And in a world where talent and get a having talent on, on your roster, whatever kind of roster it is, is super important, understanding what actually motivates talent rather than what we imagine motivates talent is, is a critical change, I think. You know, I love that example. I feel like we, we've had a lot of special operations veterans on the show. Mm. And, and we've got a number that are volunteers at our charity and have been employees of my consulting firm and have been, you know, organizations have been clients of our consulting firm. Yeah. And I've been able to spend quite a bit of time with them in the last decade. And to me, you see that so starkly in big DOD versus the most elite units. Yes. Like the, the idea of like, you know, lips, paying lip service to everybody gets a voice and everybody needs to be important. But the organizational behaviors are like the colonel is the one who has a brain and you guys are all here to be his hands, right? Yes. Or the general is here, right? And I'm exaggerating, but like you go to special ops and then the classified levels of special ops. And it's like they train their frontline people so well that the general can actually trust their decision making. And then they actually do. Yes. You know, they invest in those people so heavily. They're so picky on selection. They're so hard on the on how to even pass selection. And then they invest so incredibly in regular enlisted guys. They can let send that guy on a singleton mission in a country he's not supposed to be in and trust him not to embarrass the entire country. And, uh, you know, it's very much the, the upside down triangle of servant leadership where like in some ways, a lot of times the officers are just, they're almost more like the paper pushers and they're letting their senior non-coms actually plan the missions and actually say like, hey, if, if I'm the, the bullets are coming at me, I'm going to make decisions if I should be on the left or on the right. Yeah. And, and their performance is just, incredible. And I think for me, it's such a learning experience from an investment guy who's used to moving like, you know, moving assets around a chessboard. And it can, it can be tempting to think of moving people around the chessboard yeah. instead of that. No, no. I, and, 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 and you're, you're, you're on to what is actually another chapter in the book, which is the, the, which is about the myth of execution. And so your story is a nice example of actually what I, what I illustrate in the, in the, in the book which is that while those generals, some of those generals might imagine I'm making all the decisions and then I just want the troops to execute, right? In fact, that's not actually how the world works. And it's progressively less the way the world works as you go up in, as you say, in the eliteness and the, the, the special forcedness of the, of the venture where you need those people in the middle of the action on the front lines making decisions. They're not just executing your brilliant strategy. You may have had, you may have had a direction that you, you want them to take. We would like to accomplish the, the following. 
But then there's all sorts of decisions that need to be made all the way down, right to the last person, the lowest ranked person on the, on the squad. And so what I, what I believe is that we've got this myth of there's somebody who does strategy and then somebody else who executes. And we've got to go to a system that says, a model that says, each of us has to make decisions at our level. And all of those decisions have to fit together. But everybody's got to be trained to be a great decision maker and empowered to be a great decision maker. If we are into this strategy versus execution kind of mode, then then your plan, your strategy has to be so unbelievably comprehensive that those people don't have to make any decisions. But that's unrealistic. And and they learn that in the in the special forces, right? Which is that which is that that's where they head as a, the greatest learning about unless they have decision making authority, we can't accomplish any of these complicated missions. We um, see it in those organizations like I think it's the Ritz Carlton or or Four Seasons where it's like any associate can make a decision up to two thousand dollars in in favor of a guest without approvals. That's you know, four seasons. That's four seasons. Absolutely. And, and how much do people feel taken care of? Look, look at that reputation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And look at what they they get. So, so four seasons, the world's biggest uh, and most successful luxury hotel chain, Ritz Carlton, is the second. The average revenue per room night advantage of four seasons is thirty three percent. So for every, that's the measure in the industry, average revenue per room night, because it combines rate and capacity utilization, 33% higher. How can that be? The answer is it feels different to guests. It just feels different because they're never told, yes, you know, or Mr. I will, I will have to get back to you on that. They're told, sorry, we were late with the baggage. Can, can I bring you a, a bottle of champagne or a bottle of scotch or a chocolate cake? You know, what, what's your pleasure? And then you say, well, I mean, my bag was a little bit late, but wow, you know, <laughs> uh, I'll take the champagne. Thank you very much. And, there, and then guests just say next time, you know, where do I want to stay? There's another wish list guest for me. <laughs> yeah. There's another wish list guest for me that maybe, you know, do you know Isidore Sharp? Is he sharp? Yeah. Yeah. Very well. He's a friend. Really? Man, yeah. I love his book. I, I have watched every YouTube interview that's online of his. I mean, I appreciate, man, that guy knows his sport and he plays at full speed. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's, he's, and he's utterly genuine, right? I mean, <laughs> his, his uh, motto, right, is, you know, if we want our employees to treat our guests the way we want them to treat our guests, we have to treat our employees that same way. And so they have the best paid, the longest serving, the best kind of benefits, the best training, the best eating facility, facilities, all of those things so that the, all of their workers are feeling like, wow, this is the Four Seasons way. We should treat our guests the same way as we're being treated. He's brilliant. No, he's, he's, he's a brilliant man. He's also like uh, monumentally philanthropic. He's Terry Fox run all that, right? Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's a genuinely uh, great man. And this is a great team too. Rosalie Sharp is his, his wife of Lord only, I think 60 ish years uh, are a great team. So yeah, it's a great, a great, great. And most Americans don't know a great Canadian success story, actually. Yeah. <laughs> the motor hotel in Toronto, right? That's right. Yeah. Four seasons motor in $15 a night was his first hotel. <laughs> I, I think what I love about that story too is that your past doesn't have to determine your future. That, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yep. He built that hotel. He built a downtown joint venture with the Sheraton, a 1600 convention center hotel and said, there's things I like about that. My roadside motor in there's but things I don't, there's things I like about my big 1600 room hotel and things I don't. And he went out and innovated a model that started with the, the in on the park, park lane in, in London of the medium sized hotel with this extraordinarily different kind of service. And what he, what he noticed is that guests in a hotel, in luxury hotels, generally speaking, didn't want to be there, right? The assumption in the industry was, well, we're a luxury hotel. They'd of course want to be here. But the answer was no, they'd rather be at home or at the office. So his conception of luxury became service that made up for what you left at home or at the office. A wonderful, I, I, wonderful twist. Well, I, I admire that level of humility to, to actually listen instead of to be the one who knows better. No, it, it's, it's absolutely true. I mean, it's... Uh, Right, and that's that's another model we have. The model we have is to be best understood. We should advocate our point of view. My most beloved academic mentor said, "No, to to be well understood, best understood, we should both give our point of view, but then inquire into the point of view of others. And if you do that, you'll learn more about them. They'll learn more about you, and you'll have a better level of understanding. Right, a different a different model." Uh, than the model that we would yeah. most commonly use. Well, um, maybe before we we end part one here, let's talk about a couple of things. Yes. Um, a, the, the best places for people to connect with you or, or to find the book, Amazon. And uh, will you give us your website as well? Sure, sure. So my website, and I've got all my uh, writing organized on it, is www.rogerlmartin. My middle initial is L for Lloyd. So if you, if you don't get that, you'll get a, a real estate developer in uh, Houston. So <laughs> www.rogerlmartin.com. Uh, you can find me on at rogerlmartin on Twitter. You can find the book. It's called A New Way to Think. You can find it on uh, Amazon. And if you're into medium, I write a, a weekly a piece on Medium I have for the past 75 weeks called the Playing to Win Practitioner Insights series. And so those, those would be ways to, to find me and see what I've been yeah, working on. Those are fun. And I don't want to give a shout out to uh, Candice and the team over at Disco. It seems like you guys have been doing great things there as well. Yes, that's right. So so yes, Candice, Candice was a monitor person. I was talking about the consulting company. So she was a terrific monitor person who's gone off to be a, a serial entrepreneur and has created this company called Disco, which is a live learning platform. And what I did in February was a inaugural cohort of a, a create your, your winning strategy course on, on all the things that are kind of wrong about how strategy is taught and a better way to think about strategy. And we're going to do another, another cohort in October. So just go to the Candice.co platform if you want to see what that course. Yeah. So and if anybody missed that episode, we had Candice Factor on the show. And, and like Roger said, disco.co to check that out. Yeah. And everybody, please tune back in for part two. I've got a lot more questions for Roger here. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>